0: tonight on talking politics it is official we can add one more well-known very well-funded name to the list of candidates for massachusetts governor after attorney general maura healy launched her long-awaited bid this week we'll get into that a little later in the show along with serious questions being raised about the limits of political protest at public meetings and outside private residences. But first, to another candidacy announced this week, NAACP Boston head Tanisha Sullivan. She threw her hat in the ring for secretary of the Commonwealth with one issue driving her in particular, as she told Jim Browdy on Greater Boston, an issue that's also been getting a lot of national attention in recent days, expanded voting rights. We
1: have an idea that here in Massachusetts, everything is okay. And the reality is, we are actually behind other states. So first and foremost, we got to catch up.
0: But if anything, right now, Massachusetts seems to be moving in the opposite direction with popular provisions for mail-in voting and expanded early voting that were implemented during the pandemic, expiring a few weeks ago, despite repeated pleas from current Secretary of State Bill Galvin to make them permanent. So right now, how does Massachusetts stack up to the rest of the country when it comes to voting rights and why aren't we doing more? I'm joined by State Representative Erica Eiderhoven of Somerville and Cheryl Crawford, Executive Director of Mass Vote a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that aims to increase voter participation. Thank you both for being here. Cheryl, let me start with you. How does Massachusetts compare, in your estimation, to other states? Are we top tier, somewhere in the middle, uh, lagging the majority of states? Um,
2: Yes, so in my opinion, we are in the middle tier. You know, of course, we're nothing like Texas or Georgia, but we're lacking some serious reforms here, such as same-day registration and permanent mail-in voting. I mean, that would place us at the top. Um, we have so much to be proud of and much to thank our policymakers for. You know, the state has passed broad, you know, law a broad law back in 2014 that really introduced reforms like online voter registration and 16 and 17 year olds. But serious work still remains, you know, for our top, you know, to put us at the top of the pack. And one way to do that would seriously be to pass the Votes Act, which is under consideration in the State House as we speak in the Ways and Means Committee.
0: So I, you know. I, I want to ask you about the Votes Act, but before I do that, you mentioned 16 and 17 year olds, and I want to make sure I know what you're talking about there. What are you talking about there? So we passed a law
2: back in 2014 that would allow us to register 16- and 17-year-olds while they're still in high school. They would not be able to vote Got until it. they turned 18, but they could register.
0: So one more question for you, and then I'll bring Erica in here. Cheryl Crawford, what's your assessment of why the legislature did not act to codify those pandemic-era reforms that I mentioned a moment ago? Why didn't they get that done?
2: You know, um, well, while while we really wish that they had passed it back then, the Votes Act last year, we understand that the legislature had a lot on their plate last year. They had, you know, they were dealing with the COVID pandemic. They were also deciding on how to spend federal funds and relief funds and all of that kind of stuff. But what we do recognize is that the legislature's disagree on what voting reforms should look like in Massachusetts. One stickler, one sticking point is the same day registration. You know, we've been looking to pass that for over a decade.
0: And so convincing legislators is still our main priority this year. Uh, Erica Eiderhoven, from your perspective inside the building as a member of the Mm -hmm. legislature, are you as charitable in your assessment of the legislature, not Codifying the pandemic reforms that we mentioned, as Cheryl is, or or are you a harsher judge of that not getting done before they last uh, lapsed?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say I agree with Cheryl, but I will add that um, you know one of the biggest hurdles, particularly in the House, because I do want to point out that the state Senate did pass uh, the votes Act three to you know 36 to three, so overwhelmingly down party lines, um, and in the House we have. Eighty uh, percent held by Democrats, right? So we have a, a very big margin to be able to pass these voting reforms. But I think Cheryl's absolutely right that there is a struggle, particularly with same-day uh, voter registration, um, as well as the biggest hurdle in, particularly on the House side, is inaction and in maintaining the status quo. Um, last year, we passed uh, you know bills on gambling, um, you know regulation. We passed bills on. 10 cage size uh, regulation, but we didn't pass voting rights. And I want to state that, you know, this is the underlying issue is around accountability in the legislature and that inaction right now is absolutely unacceptable. Um, You know, inaction means keeping in place Jim Crow era voting laws, which is what same day registration is trying to fix. You know, inaction means we lawmakers are consenting to keeping in place laws created by the white supremacist backlash to reconstruction. So passing the Votes Act and dismantling arbitrary barriers to voting is absolutely an immoral imperative that we owe it to our voters, our communities of color, and to anyone who has been put on the margin by these systems. And it's our commitment to build a vibrant democracy to ensure that this happens.
0: To what extent might some reluctance on the part of your colleagues stem from the fact that the status quo is working pretty well for them right now? And if you expand the electorate, maybe their jobs are not as secure as they have been. Is that part of it?
3: I can't say to, as to why the the reasoning is, but I will say that um, it is absolutely important that we expand the electorate, right? We know that across the board that we have a commitment to do that. Um, and that, you know, I'll say particularly myself as representing one of the younger districts in the Commonwealth, that it's just such an important piece that we get young people, people of color, and removing these barriers from them to vote um, over, I would say supersedes, right, any sort of argument around the need to maintain the status quo, that this is something that um, our country is in deep need right now. And as we're struggling with what is democracy and protecting our democracy, now is the time for us to act.
0: Cheryl Crawford, do you sense any increased appetite in the legislature for acting on some of the ideas that we've talked about here, and maybe some other ones. I know that mass vote has backed the Fares Act, which would make public transportation free on Election Day. Is there any increased appetite, given that we see some states moving in the opposite direction, and in Washington right now, we saw Democrats try and fail to move forward national voting rights legislation. Before you answer, let's take a look at Chuck Schumer waxing morose as that effort failed.
1: Throughout our nation's history, moments of significant progress have often been followed by reactionary backlash. Unfortunately, it seems, led by one party, compelled by the most dishonest president in our history, we are in another of those dark periods.
0: So Cheryl Crawford, are you sensing any increased interest in being more proactive and aggressive when it comes to voting rights in the legislature right now?
2: Actually, I'm not because if i if I felt it, then they would pass the votes act right I, because that is a no brainer that's a bill that would just you know they didn't act on the federal level. we have a great opportunity to act on the state level um passing the votes act would absolutely do that i mean, I don't know if they have a great a greater appetite to pass it, but I know according to the december twenty twenty one poll conducted by uMass Amherst. Uh, In WCVB, uh, nearly two-thirds of Massachusetts voters support SDR. Like, people have already spoken and said, we want it. We want to do this. There are many great reasons why we should pass same-day registration, and that seems to be the one glitch. I don't know if the representative agrees with me or not, but that just seems to be the one sticking point in passing this piece of legislation. And quite frankly, that will just catapult us into the new century. We're, we're in the middle. We're supposed to
0: be on the cutting edge and we're not. Eric Eiderhoven, is that the, the big hangout, as Cheryl Crawford says? And I should note here, by the way, we've mm-hmm. talked about reforms that were put in place during the pandemic, same-day registration is not one of them. That being said, is that the hurdle that a lot of your colleagues just can't get past? It's
3: certainly a hurdle, and I'll also just add that, um, you know, we should look at the precedent that we've set in the past in terms of taking action. Back in the fall of 2020, when we saw reproductive rights were going to be under attack by decision makers in D.C., we passed the Roe Act to protect women's rights in Massachusetts. This is a very similar calling that if we are not able to protect voting rights of Americans in D.C., we must take action and pass the Votes Act and protect voting rights of the people of Massachusetts. And I think that, you know, that's something that, again, we cannot let for status quo dominate our decision making. that this is something about taking action, and that is something that people are expecting from us
0: in this moment, in this time. We have to leave it there. Erica Eiderhoven and Cheryl Crawford, thank you both for making time to be part of this convo. And then there is the race for governor. Early yesterday morning, Attorney General Maura Healey joined State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz and Harvard professor Danielle Allen on the list of Democratic candidates, in addition to Republican Jeff Deal.
2: We're in a hard time now, but we're gonna get through it. And we're gonna go on, and we're gonna build forward in ways that we can't even imagine right now. That's what excites me. And that's what I wanna bring to this as your next governor.
0: I'm joined by former Boston city councilor and mayoral candidate Tito Jackson and Jennifer Nassour, former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party and founder and president of the Pocketbook Project. Good to see you both. Tito, let me start with you. Ben Downing, another Democrat who had been running for governor, dropped out of the race a few weeks before Healy got in because of her impending candidacy. He said he looked at the fundraising numbers and he just wasn't gonna be able to raise enough money to stay competitive this year. If you are Danielle Allen or Sonia Chang-Diaz, how do you make this a competitive race moving forward? And there, before I let you answer, we'll see Maria Healy brings $3.6 million to her run compared to $370,000 for Danielle Allen, $249,000 for Sonia Chang-Diaz, and $104,000 for Jeff Deal. So how do her fellow Democrats try to make this a race, Teeter Jackson? Uh,
4: So I I know a little bit about uh, those uh, types of numbers uh, (laughs) from (laughs) a race that I had in uh, 2017. Uh, Danielle, I think, is besting me by $20,000 right now. A couple things. It's early. uh, And I know uh, folks, Adam, folks like you, uh, y'all spent a whole lot of money um, doing kind of on the Jennifer tip on the pocketbook project. Uh, you guys like to just look at our uh, actual dollars. And I think, you know, when you look at my race in 2017, um, there's no way I should have gotten 35% of the vote um, simply because I only had $350,000. If you look at my race in 2009, um, out of 16 people, um, I came in fifth. I had like 50 or 60 grand. The top person at that point, John Connolly, had 450000 You should not know my name. And so I think there's something to be said about the type of door-to-door uh, grassroots campaign that actually engages people. This is some of the most difficult economic times that people have had. Difficult uh, public health times. Difficult, difficult mental health times. So this isn't. Uh, this is not a feather complete for anyone um, in uh, this space. The issues uh, are are there. And by the way, they cut across racial. Uh, um, Uh, aspects, um, economic aspects, everybody is having a hard time. So you need a candidate who's going to get into the tone and tenor, roll her sleeves up or his sleeves up um, or their sleeves up uh, in order to actually make this uh, happen. Dollars are the one thing that you can see, uh, but doors, uh, connections, and uh, empathy you may not be able to see and you might be surprised.
0: Your point about not overstating the importance of money is well taken. I remember being part of a conversation in Greater Boston when Jim Browdy was hosting and there was a a Republican operative telling me there was no way that Donald Trump could become the Republican nominee because Jeb Bush had however much money Jeb Bush had. And we all know how that turned out. Jennifer Nasur, Maura Healy, to me, and, and this might get into some of what Tito was just talking about, she seems to me in the past few weeks to be making a slow motion play for independents who might have voted for Charlie Baker if he sought a third term. I wanna pull up a tweet she sent before she was an announced candidate for governor, but back when Governor Baker said he wasn't gonna seek a third term. In that tweet, Maura Healy said, I wanna thank Mass Governor for his service to this state. He's been a valued partner to my office and to me. I have deep respect for the way he has led with a focus on respect and finding common ground. Jennifer Nestor, do you think she has a chance of getting people who uh, would have voted for Baker if he sought another uh, term to back her in the general?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to say um, thank you for having me on the show. Oh, thanks for Um, being here.
0: (laughs) And to you (laughs) too, Tina.
1: But more importantly, I think, you know, number one, her tweet was much nicer than the statement that the Massachusetts Republican Party put out, so that was very kind of her. <laughs> and I think most people most people found working with Governor Baker um, put them on common ground, and they had someone who was listening to them, not someone who was attacking them, not someone who was always on the defense, um, and, and someone who that they, and it was someone who was a good manager, who was used to running a company, having employees come in and have a conversation. I think that the thing that Maura Healy is going to face though now is the curse of the AG. From what you heard from her statement was it was very much empty rhetoric, right? It wasn't anything specific. It was just, here's what we're doing in the future and and it's going to be bright and rosy, but there wasn't anything else. And, And I absolutely agree with Tito, and maybe this is one of a few times that I will absolutely agree with Tito, but what he said about the money issue It doesn't matter how much money you have as long as you're actually doing the work. And what we had seen with Martha Coakley back in her race with Scott Brown and with her race with Charlie Baker was that she took for granted that, yes, her name was known, but she didn't do the work that was needed to be done. And so I think that that is one problem that she might face against the other two.
0: For what it's worth, which isn't necessarily much of anything, my take was that that happened in the Brown race and she shifted gears a little bit but couldn't get it done against Charlie Baker but that's a convo for another time. And um oh Teeter you wanted to hop in?
4: I I yeah I did I did want to hop in. Maura is no joke and she is not a punk. Um and so we also have a competitor. You have someone who by the way was an underdog. She was not supposed to win. She was not known. Her money, uh, you know, so so the piece is Let's also. I, what I want to say. She's obviously as a Democrat, she's the front runner, um, and I believe she's a, uh, a front runner uh, statewide. Uh, but it's still up to her uh, to prove to the voters um, that she deserves the job. But she is the obvious, and and I, I can't um, fathom uh, that anyone else w- could could debate me uh, strongly on this on uh, the front runner um, in, in in this race. So I I I see a real competitor, um, and I also see a finisher. Um, to use a basketball
0: term. I would love to keep talking with you guys about this race for a while longer, but I also want to make sure that we do plenty of justice to our next topic, which is the increasing sharpness that we've seen when it comes to political protest at Mayor Wu's house, before that at Governor Baker's house, also in some other uh, local areas. Tito Jackson, let me stay with you for a second. Um, We have seen the people opposed to Mayor Wu's VAX mandates that are just now kicking in. We've seen them show up at City Hall and drown out the sound of her swearing in the new city council. We've seen them march through the streets of Boston, and now they are a regular presence at, as we and other news outlets have reported at Mayor Wu's home in the morning where they are very vocal, uh, upsetting her neighbors, uh, among other people. As someone who was on the city council, uh, ran for mayor, what do you see when you size up the protests at Mayor Wu's home?
4: Yeah, so um, I have been involved um, in multiple protests um, across the, the city of Boston. Um, I, When I worked for Governor Patrick, we do need to note um, that there were people from the Republican party who protested um, in uh, prisoner outfits um, in front of his home, as well as the home of, of John Walsh. Um, and so this is something that has happened. Um, for me personally, um, I, I think it's out of bounds. Um, I think it's, it's, there's one thing to do it once. Um, but I, I, I personally think, you know, where she's going to be, she has a public schedule. Um, so I, and, and the, um, uh, the enhanced issue of having uh, children involved, I believe, um, it is, uh, it is an issue. I, I absolutely understand uh, that there are people's lives that are being affected by, uh, requirements relative to, Uh, COVID. I had COVID in March 2020, um, and uh, there are multiple uh, medical challenges that I had to go through um, at at that time. Um, But when it comes down to it, um, in particular for those individuals who are in the public safety space, this is a critical uh, matter. Um, And what I would say is, and, and we do need to acknowledge this happened also to Mayor Walsh, um, there were individuals who who did go yep. to his home um but i think that what it's that stands out here are are the number of times this is happening the consistency um and what's just happening people absolutely have a right um to uh have their first amendment rights uh heard um i think there's a component of decorum um as well as uh the way in which we engage i'm not saying that uh, they don't have a right to do it Uh, But I think there are uh, other methodologies that could be used uh, in the long term and uh, in in a sustainable manner that actually could uh, be more effective than what's going on right now.
0: I'm glad you brought up the Walsh example. As you note, it wasn't a daily thing, but we were going to show and we may have them some some images of a protest at at then Mayor Walsh's house in the summer of 2020. People showed up at about six in the morning. Uh, They chanted that he should defund the police, fund various other projects, talked about different causes, dispersed with no incidents. I think it was a one-off. I think it's that same group that a week or two later put report cards on the doors of different Boston city councilors, which some councilors took great issue to. Uh, Jennifer Nasir, I wanna ask you about what could be done legally uh, when it comes to these protests. As Tito Jackson noted, they have a right to register their displeasure with Mayor Wu's policies. But Harvey Silverglate, who's a noted civil libertarian, is is very hawkish when it comes to protecting freedom of speech. He told the Boston Globe columnist Joan Venaki recently, loud demonstrations early in the morning in a residential neighborhood do cross a line and the demonstrators are subject to arrest. The law on this is very clear. With regard to any public demonstrations, tactics are governed by what the Supreme Court has dubbed considerations of time, place, and manner. Again, Harvey Silverglade is a guy who knows his stuff. I want to ask you, if these protesters were to be arrested at Mayor Wu's home, what do you think the impact of those arrests might be?
1: Well, so, you know, I mean, we see that this, the governor has had protests at his home almost every day since the pandemic has started, right? Um, You know, and this is something like Tito pointed out, you know, and it was, uh, you know, Deval Patrick and it was John Walsh. And this has been going on for a while. It's very unfortunate. It is a First Amendment right. However, I would say it's really disruptive to the, you know, when you run for public office, it is you who puts yourself out there. It's not your family and it's not your neighbors and it's not your friends. And those people should be immune from those protests. And so, you know, it's almost like if your neighbor t- tears down their house and a new home is being built, there's a certain time period that that work can start. And maybe that's it, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what Harvey is saying, is that, okay, so protests can't start until eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah, time, and place, at that- and
0: manner. Maybe no speakers, right? maybe no bullhorns. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so you're not really chilling free speech, but you're saying you have to uh, you have to abide by the same rules and regulations as other loud um, noises that we hear in a neighborhood. As far as any public place that you are, I mean, it's unfortunate that we've gotten to this place, but the the country and people have become so disrespectful that it's no longer just a peaceful protest. But I've been at events where the governor has been and people are blowing bullhorns. They are making so much noise that it's frustrating to be someone who is at a place So if they go to a restaurant and you basically stop their life, and it's not fair because they are public servants, and they should be treated with the same respect that you and I
0: are. I feel like I should mention here, I have covered some of those protests at the governor's house, and at one of them, when some environmental activists put a boat in front of his driveway and chained themselves to the boat and said they were putting the governor under house arrest. I talked with one of the organizers, and I said to her, well, what would you say to people who argue, you know, yeah, it's fine to, to protest, but don't do it this way? And her answer to me was, you know, we've tried to get coverage for the issues we are interested in. We've sent press releases out to GBH Mm -hmm. and other news outlets. Um, You haven't covered us before, but here you are now talking with me. So maybe the media has a role to play here, too. Tito Jackson, uh, carrying through the point that that Jennifer Nasser made about the the tone in the country, Diana Ploss, one of the right-wing protesters who has been a regular at Governor Baker's home, She reportedly helped derail a recent Board of Health meeting in Somerville where they were considering vax mandates by bringing a bunch of people who were not from Somerville to disrupt the proceedings. Something similar happened in Beverly uh, right before the new year when people showed up and, and among other things, proposed that uh, they all head down to Boston and burn down Mayor Wu's home. Do you think that when we get back to life as we used to live it, when we're not interacting with each other virtually, but we're actually, you know, doing, for example, a board of health meeting in person, is this stuff going to simmer down just because it's harder to be a jerk in person, or have we crossed a line here? Uh, you know,
4: it's interesting, Adam. You, you know, I think a lot of the uh, tonality that you see from Twitter uh, and online is uh, kind of the the things that you get uh, that. Uh, you see, written on walls and bathrooms, right? Yeah. Where there's uh, the cowardice um, that that you see. Um, but I, I do, sadly, uh, believe that we are in a really difficult place. Uh, people are are talking at each other, and not to each other. Um, I think these issues, and and by the way, a lot of these are underlying economic issues. When you listen to what people are saying, um, they're actually speaking about their economic health and and well-being. So there's actually some topics that we can we actually all agree upon, um, but we end up starting with wh- where we disagree yeah. versus backing into um, where we actually start and, and agree upon um, a- across uh, the state as well as the country. One of the things though, Adam, is w- people have to engage on a local level. We shouldn't have 200 people from outside the city of Boston come and overrun a meeting um, that is about people in Boston. That is a challenge for those elected officials to continue to engage people, um, to make sure that people are are engaged. It's a challenge for our government as a whole, and it's also a challenge to our communities uh, to make sure that we are not overrun uh, by uh, individuals who um, may or may not live in in and around yeah. uh, their their uh, community. So I think there's a lot to be done um, in in that re- regard. We got part of a, Sorry go. to
0: sorry to interrupt you. I just know the clock mm-hmm. has ticked down, and I'm now mm-hmm. in the red. So we got to leave it there on a mildly optimistic note. Tito Jackson and Jennifer Nasor, thank you for talking this through. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for tonight, but do come back next week with no COVID vaccines for young kids, limited masking abilities, and constant child care shutdowns. Many parents and caregivers are feeling left behind and at a breaking point. Can government do more? And as always, tell us what you think. The email is talkingpolitics at wgbh.org. The website is gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics. Or find me on Twitter at Riley Adam for now. Thank you for watching, and good night.